Welcome to the Wordsmith Podcast. I'm Josh Bennett, lead pastor of Awakened Church, joined with Pastor Matthew Grady Calhoun. Hey. And Pastor Jeremy Shane Suggs. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And we're back for episode four, season three, the Wordsmith Podcast. And we're excited to be back with you. Um, had a birthday this week, turned 39, and hitting a big milestone next year, 40. And I've been thinking back about life and different things. Um, my kids are reminding me how old I'm getting. And I, one of the things that kind of was shocking to me was I realized that the time difference between my birthday now and when I turn, when I was born and when I was born to World War II are the same. Hmm. Growing up, World War II seems like ancient history. Yeah, it does. And now I'm like, man, it doesn't yeah. seem that long ago. And so anyway, I was thinking about lots of different things. One of the things I was thinking about um, was teachers, and we're, we're talking around here before we started the podcast, some influential teachers that we've had. Um, you know, I had a lot of different teachers that had a lot of influence on me, but the one that was probably the most influential for me was a lady named Bonnie Moreland. She was my high school chemistry teacher. Um, and I went to a small high school, so she taught me a couple of different subjects of science um, throughout high school. Um, but she was one of those teachers that she taught me the subject, but she invested in me as a person much more. And um, there were a couple times in high school I maybe stepped over some bounds and did some things I shouldn't. And I remember one time I uh, went into class, and she had heard uh, some stuff I'd done. She pulled me outside of class and got in my face and told me that I was not the type of person that should do those kinds of things. Um, reprimanded me, convicted me with the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm, come on. And in all seriousness, she set my path straight. You know, I was making yeah. a few decisions I probably shouldn't have, and um, it was a little short science teacher that set me straight mm. and um, did so with, it, from a spiritual perspective and from a motherly perspective. Yeah. So, Miss Bonnie, if you somehow hear this, know that I appreciate you very much. She also cleaned my Timberland boots. You remember Timberland boots? Oh, yeah. Uh, I walked in one day, and she said, Mr. Bennett, those boots are filthy. <laughs> and um, she said, bring a different pair tomorrow. And so I brought those boots, and she took them home and cleaned them and shined them. Man, them things look good. And made me a cake one day. So I might have been a teacher's pet. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm going to guess. That certainly sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, and then one day I ripped my pants. She made me go in the lab, take my pants off, and she sewed my pants up during class and then gave me my pants back. Did you sit in the front of the classroom? No. Nah. Really? No. Nah. See, you seem like the type that people like me would have probably made fun of. Yeah, that's probably a good chance of that. Yeah. Uh, I had... Miss Keene, my fourth grade teacher in elementary school, that was my, my favorite teacher. And I, I have a type because um, I had a favorite teacher, um, um, Coach Brown in middle school or junior high is what we call it then. And then um, uh, Mr. McEwen probably in high school. But mm. all of them kind of have, now that I think about it, all had a same, th they were like no-nonsense type teachers, you know. They didn't uh, put up with anybody playing around in their classes. As a matter of fact, Mr. McEwen threatened to beat me up one day in the hallway. Um, so it, it Shaw, um, we had, they called it team teaching back there. It was kind of a new thing then. Um, but we would have three different teachers. And like most of my classes had about 90, 95 students in mm -hmm. each class. And you would have three teachers. And like one would teach on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the other Monday and you know, Wednesday and then another one on Friday or something like that. And um, one day Mr. Neal was teaching and, and I still remember it was like it was yesterday. Hmm. But so I was back there. I was like, in the, I was one of those that just, I sat in the back of the class. Oh, sure. And uh, I was like, I was goofing off. I don't know exactly what I was doing. But Mr. I can't Neal, imagine this. No. Yeah, but Mr. Neal called me down from the front of the class and asked me, hey, you know, Mr. Suggs, are you doing this? Which I was, but I was mm -hmm. like, no, sir. You know, because like, I'm not going to admit that I was cutting up in class. And so, because uh, I get in trouble at home if, you know, I got sent home for that. So, um, Mr. McEwen was sitting in the back of the class that day. He said, Suggs hallway. And that's all he said. <laughs> and so I went out to the hallway. He said, do you know that when Mr. Neal is up there teaching and he sees you do something and he calls it down and then you tell him you wasn't doing it, he said, you're calling him a liar? And Which I, okay, yeah, yeah I, I saw his point. I wasn't going to admit to him I saw his point, but yeah. I was like, yeah, I don't see it that way. He said, i tell you this. He said, if, if you ever call me a liar, Suggs, I'll clean your clock. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I was like, oh, okay. He said, now you sit out here and I want you to think about that the rest of this or this class period. And, you know, I never misbehaved in that class again. And if, no. if I ever did, I don't I don't remember it. But 
uh, that kind of sent me, at least for that that period, that year, because I was like, okay, he ain't putting up with, yeah. you know, uh, me cutting up. And if, if I do, he's not going to put up with me saying I wasn't, you know. So, mm-hmm. uh, But that that probably wouldn't fly today. And if you're a teacher listening to this, don't like threaten to beat up your students. Um, <laughs> but that probably wouldn't fly today. Back then, nah. um, teachers talking to students like that was somewhat normal. I don't know if he would have followed through on it. I kind of felt that he would at the time. Sure. And that uh, day and age, I mean, it wouldn't have been unheard of. Yeah, because I have uh, heard of, you know, teachers doing it. But anyway... That was kind of par for the course um, back then. Um, but it did, I mean, just the threat kind of set me straight, you know, at least for that, that school year. So Yeah. But he was my favorite teacher in, in high school. Miss King was the same way. And Coach Brown in, in middle school, he was the, you know, all of them were just yeah. really, hey, I, I don't put up with any mess in my classroom. And I don't, maybe on some level I just kind of respected that because that's how, kind of yeah. how my, my mom and papa were, were both like that at the house. So maybe right. it kind of. Uh, compared the two, sure. I don't know. Yeah. But. Yeah. You know, the least shocking part of this story to me was that you realized you were wrong, but wouldn't admit it. Yeah, I hadn't really outgrown that <laughs> a whole lot. Oh, uh, but we can all be prone to do that. Yeah. Oh, sure. About you, Matt? Um, I mean, I'm going to give you two answers just because I like to be difficult. So for high school, it was probably, believe it or not, uh, Ronnie McNeese. Ronnie McNeese was our head football coach. That's what I was um, thinking when you said that name. During uh, during my high school years. Very successful for a, a Region 1A school. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a lot, a lot of, of McNeese I think, over there. I actually just looked up his stats. It was 179, 80, and 1 was his wow. uh, coaching record. But he, he taught classes. Uh, and look, when you have a coach in a classroom, normally it's kind of a joke. Yeah. If we're going to just be honest about it. Most of them. Um, most of them, like, they start, they take it really serious early on, but if they get to the head coach part, it just becomes easier to kind of be a joke and, and kind yeah. of be cut up or whatever. And look, to some degree, when I had him, it was that way. But he actually was a very good teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and when people talk about him now and remember him, uh, sadly, that gets left behind. He made it interesting, which is the best way uh, for anybody to learn anything, is if you sure. actually yeah. have if you care about it, if you're interested in it. And the way he taught history, again, it was uh, it, it rambled and jumped around, and he would include odd tidbits just to kind of wake us back up, so to speak. I, I still remember that. And obviously he was a very kind man, good man. I grew up with him. Him and my father were close. And uh, him, his son and my sister were close as well. So he was a family friend. Uh, I, everybody, I guess, called him family friend in such a small town in Colquitt. But... Uh, yeah, so he, he was very special to me. And then I'm not going to pick one of my college professors, if I could as well, uh, Dr. Matthew McAfee. Okay. I, I took Greek. I was obligated to take Greek. Um, for one track, it was two years of languages. For another track, it was one year of languages. I initially was going to get two years of languages. Very quick, quickly figured out that was not going to be the case. Uh, I am absolutely terrible when it comes to languages. It's really bad. Uh, like, if you're talking about literature... And uh, like poetry and stuff like that, I, I, I can do that well. But when you actually come down to breaking sentences down and stuff like that, I'm very terrible about with English, let alone <laughs> other languages. So I failed the first semester of Greek. Uh, and then I had first semester of Greek again with McAfee, passed it, went on to the second semester, failed it. Uh, at that point, I was obligated, had to change course, went to the other track. Uh, so I actually had... McAfee, <laughs> you know, twice more than most people. And then also there was a couple of freshman courses I had to retake because I had a D and they were just bringing down my um, my overall grade point average enough to where it would be advantageous yeah. if I took one or two of them again. So I had him for like several different classes in ways that a student normally wouldn't. And I, again, he always made it interesting. Um, there was one class where he talked about Ugritic, which is an ancient language, no one could possibly make that interesting. I, that's the only time I think I ever fell asleep in a class in all my years of education. Oh, man, I slept all the time. Yeah, no, just just that one. Just you can't make you critic interesting. It's just not possible. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, he was just, you knew he cared deeply about the subject matter. So sure. that kind of rubbed off on you a little bit. And the other thing was, again, like Ronnie, uh, he was a, just a good guy. Uh, he still is. He's still alive. I don't know why yeah. I'm using the past tense. Yeah, I was going to say, Grace liked him. Eden didn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I liked him. I, I only had him for second year Greek, mm-hmm. um, which second year Greek, 
which would be third and fourth semesters. Mostly Greek. syntax, right? Yeah, well, we, I mean, we basically took the book of Philippians and translated mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to me, that first year of Greek is really difficult. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the most difficult subject I've ever tackled. And I did not have McAfee for that. I had Dr. Paul Harrison, yeah. who's a different kind of character. I, I my very first it. semester of Greek was with Harrison. Yeah, yeah and it wasn't until first semester or first and second semester of Greek with Dr. Harrison that I actually learned English. And like yeah, what a preposition right. was right. and all yeah. these things, um, which helped me quite a bit. But Dr. McAfee, was, is, he, is he Dr. McAfee? He is doctor yeah. now. Yeah, he yeah. is now. Um, man, he's just really enjoyable guy to be around. And like mm-hmm. you said, very, very good. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, Canadian, um, one of my favorite classes, I'm going to mention this briefly. So we were having, I think it was biblical interp. Uh, and I was with in the class with two other guys. They were both named Nick. One was Nick from Alabama, one was Nick from Kentucky. They were both good old boys, your typical. They they loved the Lord. Academic settings were probably not somewhere they were going to uh, flourish, but they were good guys, and they were trying their best. So they were in my class with me, and he got off on a tangent. You know, sometimes teachers do. Sometimes students encourage teachers to go off on tangents because you're tired of talking about whatever you're talking about. Yeah. And he was talking about growing up. And on Fridays, when he was growing up in Canada, it was kind of a big family day every week. His family would get together. They would go to the store and they would buy ingredients to make like homemade pizza. Mm-hmm. So they would make this big like homemade pizza and they would sit and watch TV. They would watch The Incredible Hulk <laughs> and they would watch The Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> and the two Nicks could not comprehend that somebody in Canada grew up watching Dukes of Hazard. They could, much. they could not. And he he explained it like three or four times. They could not intellectually understand like that it was the same show. Like at one point, they thought it was like a Canadian version of Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> they could not understand. It was just the exact same. Like Canada, they get the same shows we do for the most part. They also have their own networks, but for the most part, they get the same shows we do. Couldn't understand it. It's just one of my one of my all time favorite classes I've ever had ever. It's just I remember it vividly even now. It's just great. Wow. So anyway, I'm sorry that was a random thing. No, you're you're fine. You know, listening to these stories, I I get the impression we were all three di- very different types of students. Yeah, yeah, I'm in school. Say so, yeah. Um and yeah, it would. Well, hold on now. If you're going to drop that bomb, describe it. How how were all three of us different? Okay, now so, I'm insecure. I want to know. No, I mean no, nothing insecure. <laughs> so I mean, Shane was the guy that sat in the back of the classroom, made fun of everything, gave yeah. teachers a hard time. Sure, yeah. Scrap by, scrap yeah. by on his grades sometimes. Okay, <laughs> but but you made it. But you scrapped by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How yeah. hard did you try? Not very. Okay, so what was your average, roughly? <laughs> I I could tell you this. We had. Roughly 280 yeah. graduates when I when I graduated um, from from my high school. I mean, we, of course, we had nine high schools, but sure. there were only eight or nine people below me with GPAs in the class. So you were top ten? No, below me. Below you? Okay, there, you were bottom yeah. ten. Yeah, I was yeah. Like okay. bottom ten of the class. So. Okay, had you applied yourself and tried, where would you have been? I don't know. Average, probably somewhere in the middle, maybe. Yeah. I just I think you're short now, selling. I think you're short yeah. selling. Here, here's so. the deal: like in, in college, when I actually had, because I went, I didn't go back to college till I was late twenties, mm-hmm. and I had to pay for it. Man, GPA was great. I mean, I I did great. I A's and B's in yeah. every single class I ever yeah. took. Because you were growing um, at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, so that free education, I didn't take very seriously. But when I actually had, like, I had something loose here, you know, mm-hmm. right. um, I, I did way better. But, yeah, I was I was more interested in having a good time in high school than I was learning anything because sure. I didn't think yeah. it really mattered. Because, again, now when I graduated, I was like, I'm going to build houses because everybody in my house, they do, yeah. not house, but everybody in my family, extended right. or otherwise, all did construction work. So I'm like, I don't really need all this because yeah. I know what I'm going to do. And right. my family encouraged me, hey, this, you know, you got a job waiting on you when you get out of high school, so yeah. just get your diploma. So I did enough to get my diploma, and that was it. I wish I'd have done different, but yeah. I mean, that's just, I'm just, that's how it was. All right, so that was the kind of student you okay, were. Okay, so I'm guessing you were studious, quiet, worked hard to get your grades. Um, sorta. I definitely, I've always been quiet. That's, there's yeah. nothing new there. Um, I, if I got it instantly, I got it. Yeah. But if I didn't care about it, I had trouble caring about it. Okay. So that probably held me back. I probably, throughout um, high school and college, I was probably a B to B-plus student. Yeah. Um, if I, Again, if I got it instantly, I got it. And if I cared about it, I would care about it and remember it all many years later. But if I didn't care about it, I just couldn't motivate myself right. to care about it. I couldn't care about getting an A. Yeah. If that makes sense. Right. I just couldn't, like, 
as long as I got what I got to get, I got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Be, and you were pretty, really quiet. We settled on that. Yeah. No, definitely. No, so for <laughs> me, I think a lot of education, we talk about this at our local school um, board, but a lot of education is getting ahead early. Like if, if sure. you, there's a, like if you're on reading level by third grade, the chances that you're going to excel in high school are like yeah, astronomical. Yeah. My dad early on, like first, second, third grade, had very high standards. Mm-hmm. And so after that, things pretty well came easy to me. But because of that, I didn't try very hard. Yeah. And so it was kind of one of those things. I think I finished number seven in my class. But if I'd really tried, I probably could have done better. Mm-hmm. But I was a distracting student because things came easy. So I had sure. free time. That's and was, right. yeah. You know, and so I was more... I guess the extroverted student in the class that Pat Shane would have made fun of. Imagine you being extroverted. Would have <laughs> Shane would have been aggravated, and making fun of, and annoyed. And um, I mean, I did have one student one time, and I think it was tenth grade geometry. She said, "I wish you would just shut up so that I could learn something." Yeah, because <laughs> I mean, I talk all day long. Sure. It was... And part of my problem too was I had ADD. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had. I technically still do. I guess so. My mother obviously took the reins with that whenever a kid has, you know, any kind of learning disability. Normally the mom's the one who takes the reins for it. So because of that, I sort of had a, a softer structure. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't expect me to go get A's because they knew right. that I had this disability or whatever. So because of that, I probably at times took advantage of it to some right. degree, especially when I was a teenager. Sure. So I didn't feel that pressure to have to try my best. Yeah. You know, we've been on this tirade probably too long, but I'm going to finish with one more thought. You know, research has shown that the most successful CEOs in the United States today are not the students that were top of their class, yeah. um, high A students. They were the students that were kind of B, high Bs that had to work hard mm-hmm. because they learned to like face challenges and work through stuff. And so that's been kind of interesting. All right, let's move into the text. I don't know what kind of student Elijah was, but he certainly went through the school of hard knocks hey. um, that we've seen here. Let's pick up 1 Kings chapter 17. We're going to read verses 17 through the end of the chapter. After this, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. His illness got worse until he stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, man of God, why are you here? Have you come to call attention to my iniquity so that my son is put to death? But Elijah said to her, give me your son. So he took him from her arms and brought him up to the upstairs room where he was staying and laid on him in his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow I am staying with by killing her son? Then he stretched himself out over the boy three times. He cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, please let this boy's life come into him again. So the Lord listened to Elijah and the boy's life came unto him again and he lived. Then Elijah took the boy brought him down from the upstairs room into the house and gave him to his mother. Elijah said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you are a man of God, and the Lord's word from your mouth is true. Let's do a little bit of recapping. Talk back about um, season, I mean, episodes one through three. So this whole story of Elijah begins with him confronting Ahab, Mm -hmm. um, the most wicked toad to ever sit on the throne of Israel or something of that nature um, from that great sermon payday someday and then from there what happens the lord tells him to go to the brook there at Cherith to hide is the verb mm-hmm. that's used uh he, he goes there and is fed by ravens uh for an extended period of time yeah am i the only one when i hear that thinks of edgar Allan poe no i think he's it's hard to think of ravens not to get edgar <laughs> Allan poe yeah. yes <laughs> quotes the raven never more yeah yep and then after the brook Cherith. He goes to Zarephath, which is where he meets the widow and her um, widow and her son, and then the whole thing with the bread and the oil, and it's it's not basically it's a miracle mm-hmm. of God. It's a sign of God's provision, sign of God's blessing through His prophet to someone who's endured hardship. Yeah. And so we pick this story back up today here at Zarephath, and the story gets dramatic tragic, pivotal, um, whatever word we want to put in there, because it's a big moment for Elijah. It's a big moment for this woman. Um, it's a big arc in the story here. And so the woman, um, her son, it says, after this, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill, and his illness got worse until he stopped breathing, and so he died. That's that's a pretty serious thing, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, he's going to deny that death is a pretty serious thing. But you put yourself in this woman's shoes again, which is what you're trying to do. She allows this prophet to come in and 
you're thinking, okay, well, the bread didn't run out, but my son died, you know? So what kind of moment we're going on? How did this woman respond to her son dying? Well, I mean, initially she was distraught as any parent would be at, at, sure. uh, at the, the sickness and then ultimate death of their child. And she, I mean, she kind of does lash out there a little bit, right? She says in verse 18, uh, man of God, why are you here? Have you come to call attention to my iniquity so that my son is put to death? So she, I mean, she's obviously angry and, and full of grief and kind of lashing out at Elijah a little bit. I don't think she's, I don't think she's saying that in good faith in that moment. Yeah. I, I, maybe I'm reading into that. You, you could accuse me of that, but I don't think I am. No, and I mean, you know, I think she, some of the reason I said it's, it's remarkable that she didn't respond worse. Yeah. You know, because <laughs> we respond to grief in many different sure. ways. Shane, what do you think about her response? Um. Well, I, like I, when I was reading the first line, I'm guessing the son got sick and died really quickly. Like it wasn't a long drawn out. I, I, don't, I don't remember reading anything like he was sick whenever Elijah had got you know, got sure, to yeah. her, like, it was yeah. just a sickly it, boy. It's interesting because I I assume that too, but then it does separate it. He got sick and then his illness got worse. And so I, I don't know. Well, and well, I started thinking, well, why, if that is the case, if it was like, hey, he'd been sick for a while and then it, it got worse and he died. Um, we don't read anything about Elijah, like praying for his deliverance, you know, yeah. like, hey, you know, he's sick, Lord, will you heal him? That sort of thing. Um, no, that didn't necessarily mean it didn't happen. Though. No, no, it, does, just, no, it doesn't. I just, it, it just, that's something that kind of stuck out to me. But what I think is going through my, like, I'm, what goes through our mind a lot of times, like, I'm, I'm doing everything that the man of God told me to mm-hmm, do. Mm-hmm. You automatically think in your mind, hey, I'm doing all the do's and avoiding all the don'ts. Yeah. God's supposed to bless me. That's right. Um, and, and, it's really, I think it's because we think more of ourselves than we ought to. It's, it's mm-hmm. more pride. Like, like God, I did all the do's and avoided all the don'ts. You owe me something. No. Um, so maybe some of that is going through. I, I would think that would go, that often goes through our mind whenever we go through hardship because we start thinking back like, God, you know, I, I started going to church. I started serving. I started mm-hmm. giving. And, and now something bad happened to me, you know. Um, yeah. uh, and like I thought I was supposed to be blessed if I did all these things. I wasn't supposed to be, uh, in essence, cursed, you know, because I'm doing all of these sure. things. Like, and but I think really in those moments, it's like it's like we're saying, God, you owe me something in return for this. Yeah, but she yeah. doesn't. So I I agree. I think to some degree that's taking place. I know sometimes that happens in my own life, but I also think there's something to be said for when you start following after the Lord. We're obviously. We're talking post uh, post cross and resurrection. Yeah. This is pre cross and resurrection. Sure. So to use our language, when you, when you start following after Jesus, right? A lot of times it seems like things will go well for a little bit, and then you'll come across some hardships that honestly they seem worse than before you were following after Jesus. Sometimes you know yeah. it's just like, well, now this is really hard. This is not nearly as hard as what was happening before I was following Jesus. So you have that moment to be tempted to doubt, yeah. to tempted to think. Well, this is even worse. Wait a minute. I, I'm yeah. doing what the Lord tells me to do. I, I'm trying to follow after Jesus and believe and trust in him. Now worse things are coming down the pike. And there's just something about that that seems off. Yeah. That seems wrong. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's often uh, often what happens for us Yeah. even now. Yeah. Well, And I think there's a combination that goes on here. I think when people start doing that, one, they lose perception of what, what it used to be like because memories are always... Sure not as strong as current feelings. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we think it's worse now than it used to be, and it may or may not be. Yeah, sure. The second thing is I think there's trials. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Scriptures teach us that we go through things to make it stronger and perseverance and all those things. Mm-hmm. So I think that's happening. And two, I think there's spiritual warfare. Sure. Hey, you've started following Christ. You've made commitments to church. Yeah. And so Satan's fighting that, and mm-hmm. the, he's going to throw things at you to try to um, get you off track. And so I think there's a combination of all three of those things well, going yes, on. Something very similar happens to Elijah down the road. You know, this is basically her mountaintop moment like god providing for me in a miraculous way and i'm you know on top because my like i'm provided for now mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so it's kind of like this this miraculous provision that god is providing and then right after that a hardship that's just as sure. equal to that and then elijah down the road you know he has this mountaintop moment up on mount carmel and you know he battles all these guys mm-hmm. these uh false prophets of baal and god sends down fire from heaven and you could just yeah. imagine man this is just like this is an awesome experience. And then right after that, he's running for his life. And uh, for lack of a better term, he has a nervous breakdown almost. And like, yeah. man, I, 
I wish I was dead. I just want to quit doing this. You know, mm-hmm. I'm the only one left on earth that's following God. And, and right. so, yeah, I mean, we, we see that all throughout Scripture. And, and it's also bared out in our own lives, um, you know, as well sure. from time to time. I think it is interesting how those things often kind of go together yeah. or sure. follow one another, it seems like. It really yeah. is. Much of the Christian life really is a mountain and valley, mountain and valley, yeah. mountain and valley. <laughs> and, and you can see that in the disciples' lives. Mm-hmm. You can see that in prophets' mm-hmm. lives. Um, you can see that many ways. She responds with two um, very common characteristics to grief. Blame. So mm-hmm. she said, oh, man of God, what have you brought to my house? Sure. You know, so she's doing what anybody else would do, blaming Elijah. Hey, if you had not been here, this yeah. probably wouldn't have happened. Sure. But then she also responds with guilt. Yeah. Because she says, have you come to, to point out my iniquity or my sin? Mm-hmm. And so she does what any grieving mother would do here. Is this my fault? Is mm-hmm. God punishing my son? Did my son die because of my sin kind of thing? Yeah. I, I was reading in the message yesterday, uh, this passage, and it even uses the phrase exposing my sins, Yeah, which I thought was interesting, that that's kind of where her mind goes. And I think that's a good point that you were making is that we, it is interesting when, when these difficult things happen, whether they be trials, whether whatever, you do get this mix of, well, this is your fault. This is somebody else's fault, so you're lashing yeah. out at people. But then this, oh, this is my fault. Yeah. This is because of my sin or whatever. It is interesting. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't thought about that Well, before. And I'm no expert on the seven stages of grief, but I'm pretty sure, sure blame <laughs> and guilt are part of them there somewhere. Yeah, because we, we just try to make sense of it. You know, sure. yeah. to, it's, there's got to be a reason this happened. You know, mm-hmm. Is it yeah. your fault? Is it my fault? Is it? Well, and you talk about these seven stages of grief, and I don't want to go off on this too far because it's not the topic, but yeah. when you go through true tragic events, it's amazing how you see those things kind of play out and yeah. and. Yeah. You know, you see, uh, here's a philosophy about how people deal with grief, but when you deal with it, you go, ah, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. You go through all these different stages. I do think there's a powerful lesson we can learn here about how we respond to people in grief, especially as pastors, but yeah, as other yeah. Christians, mm-hmm. because when people start to grieve and they lash out and they say things, it's a human nature response, especially for um, males to go, man, I got to fix this. Let me respond. Yeah. Let me try to answer your <laughs> questions. Let me try to mm-hmm. fix your emotions. Mm-hmm. But how does Elijah respond to this woman? Well, it, it, at first, it's worth noticing that he doesn't lash out at her, and he doesn't try to correct her in any form or way. Right. It's almost like he receives what she's saying. Yeah. Uh, and then the sure. passage there, 19, says, But Elijah said to her, uh, Give me your son. So yeah. he, he, he doesn't try to—in in Christian circles, we do this all the time. We try to correct people's theology when they're in the midst of yeah. pain, which almost never works. Yeah, it, it's it almost never actually works when you're in the midst of it. It's, it just makes them not like you. More. That, that's basically right. what it is. Yeah, and if they don't get upset with you, they'll get upset with God. Yeah. So it it at first I think the first thing he does is he kind of receives. He actually listens to her. Right. Sort of like how we've mentioned yeah. before, Job's friends. The first thing they did was they sat with him in grief. Yeah. The only thing they got right. Yeah, the only thing they got right. <laughs> Great friends. They sat in grief. So they opened their mouth. And they, they waited. And they yeah. grieved with him for a period of time and didn't try to correct anything, didn't try to fix anything. They were just present with him. So yeah. I think Elijah to, is to some degree doing that here. Yeah. It's more about what he didn't do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, man, we are, as Christians sometimes are the worst. Well, you know, we got these Christian cliches and mm-hmm. we try to answer people's griefs. And, and, you know, I don't remember some of the most tragic or grieving times in my life like when we had a miscarriage like I didn't want anybody to try to explain it to me yeah. I didn't really hate God I did not not trust God I was just hurting mm-hmm. sure. you know and I just wanted people to grieve with me and to care and, and to do those kinds of things so that's a powerful lesson here Elijah could have said who do you think you are sure. yeah. you know you're calling me out a prophet you don't trust God you know all these different things but he doesn't he doesn't do those things but silence is hard yeah I mean, I know this principle, but when somebody comes to me grieving, let me ask you this, what's your typical response if you're not trying to monitor yourself, if somebody comes to you grieving and a lashing out kind of blame, guilt type deal? Well, with situations like that, my introvertedness spikes. Sure. And it is really awkward for me, I, I especially if somebody's crying. Like, I, um, I usually don't say anything, which is... Not because I'm trying to be wise, it's because I'm scared. Yeah. Like I don't I, I don't know. I just I don't know how to deal with that. I don't know how to deal with that emotionally because I yeah. like I'm hurting for them or, or something mm-hmm. like that. It's uh I'm not uh, it comes across as being more empathetic, but that's not necessarily my intent. My 
I'm just like, I, I don't know what to do in this moment. Sure. Uh, somebody's crying or, or upset or they're going through a hardship. Uh, so I generally don't start out saying anything. Um, I let them say things. You know, I, I, somewhere in there, I'm like, hey, I, I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to pray with you. You know, before you leave right. my presence, I want to pray with you. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do that sort of thing. But I, and, and we're, I'm talking about something like this, not like, hey, um, somebody says, you know, my car broke down or something. Yeah, I mean, right, that, sure. I'm talking about something like tragic, you, like a death of a loved one. Emotional you know? tears are shed. Yeah. Listen, I've seen this firsthand. If you want to make Pastor Shane extremely uncomfortable, just cry. Yeah. <laughs> It, it really does set, it, it, it triggers something for me. Understandably so, yeah. yeah. Matthew, what's your response? I think, uh, I do think I've grown in this area. Uh, I certainly, in my younger years, uh, and I probably still can do this to some degree, so I don't want to talk about it like I'm completely beyond it. Yeah. I think I was one of those people who tried to correct them. Yeah. Like, oh, no, that's not this, this is this. Oh, you shouldn't be feeling this, you should be feeling this, or blah, 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 something along those lines. It was almost like, I heard this on Twitter, and you got to be careful with things you read on Twitter. But sometimes, you know, you try to defend God yeah, as if God needs anybody to defend him, right. which is an utterly ludicrous concept. But you do. You try to correct their theology or their doctrine or whatever in that moment because you think you're helping, but of course you're not. So that's right. probably how I used to do it. But now, over the recent times um, or over recent situations where this has kind of arose, what I do now is I normally look them in the eye and say, I'm so sorry. And then considering the nature of our relationship— I may or may not give them a hug. Yeah. Because um, I just I think that's probably the best thing you can do for somebody who's really genuinely in pain. Yeah. I, I really have to restrain myself because my immediate response is try to fix stuff. Sure. Like that, and that's not just like a pastoral, like, fixed theology. kind. Of, it's just yeah. like that's my response. If you tell me you got a problem, I'm immediately trying to figure out my – and I have to tell myself that's not my problem to fix or mm-hmm. I don't yeah. need to fix this right now. And I, I can restrain myself and yeah. – and just say, you know, listen. And so one of the um, things that I've learned to do is to just grieve with people and, and that be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and to yeah. say, hey, I grieve with you. And if they want answers, then we'll talk about answers later. Yeah. yeah. You know. I don't even normally try to cons- – uh, well, I, I console them like in, in maybe in praying with them. Yeah. But I don't I, – I never say like, man, it'll be all right or, you know, you're going to get through this or, yeah. you know. I. I normally don't God works all things for the good. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't normally bring in any cliches like that. God's not going to give you more than you can handle. You know, those yeah. sort. Of, I normally don't try to you do any of that to try to console anyone. Because, like, I, I when my mom died, like I, I didn't want anybody to console me. Yeah. Like, yeah. and and uh, the and I'm sure people said stuff to me. I don't remember anything you might said. Mm-hmm. Only thing I remember in that moment, I've said it before. I think even on the podcast. Yeah, is I remember Ed Prather sitting down next to me, just putting his arm around me. That's it. He didn't yeah. say anything. He mm-hmm. didn't do anything. He just put his arm around me. He let me cry. He let me get it all out, and then he prayed, and that was it. And I was like, yeah. that made me feel so much better than anybody. That's the only thing I remember. Like yeah. I don't. Yeah. I'm, there were people trying to console me and sure. you know do all these yeah. other things, and great intentions. Yeah. I'm not saying we shouldn't ever do anything like that, but I don't remember any yeah. of it. You know, that's funny because the only thing I remember when my dad died, you know, that day, grief, people comforting kind of thing, is um, when we came out of the bedroom, my dad, um, my best friend Michael was in the kitchen and he gave me a hug and he walked outside and he got on the lawnmower and started mowing our grass. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, that's the only thing I remember, but I was like, yeah, that he loves us, you know, because he, yeah. he's doing what he can do to help us through grief. But not trying to serve answers. It was just being a servant's heart. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think the heart that we respond to people in grief is Jesus loves you. And I do too. Yeah. You know, and that, that's how mm-hmm. the best response you can give in grief. But then Elijah does take action. Um, he does do something that at this time would have been a little unusual. So what does Elijah do? Well, he prays for him. Yeah. Well, he, it's kind before, of unusual. Before he prays for him, he, he takes him upstairs, right? Sure. Lays him down on the bed. Um, and then begins to pray. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about this prayer a little bit with Elijah. How is verse 21, in a sense, kind of God and Elijah wrestling? We see God wrestling with people throughout Scripture. Um, obviously, the one that comes to mind is Jacob sure. physically wrestling um, with the angel of the Lord there. Mm-hmm. But how is this prayer kind of an, an, a wrestling of Elijah with God? Well, he starts it in verse 20, the, the prayer itself. Um, and he's... 
he's basically pleading with God to start with, like, are you going to bring affliction on the afflicted? Mm-hmm. Like, she's already a widow. Like, how, how bad is life going to be for her, God? Like, I mean, you're, and he's also acknowledging God's sovereignty. Like, God, yeah. you're, I'm talking to you because you're in control of this. Yeah. And, and like, she's already a widow. She's already got a uh, horrible, like, she was almost going to, eat her last meal and die, her and her son. Right. Yeah. And and I'm sure in some sense this was a, a testing for her, like the like the brook was a testing for, for Elijah. But he starts out like, God, God you're going to yeah. add affliction to the afflicted, um, basically. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he we see this in Scripture constantly. Sure. Um, this idea that it's okay to be angry. You don't need to sin in your anger. But it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to be emotional, and I think that's what Elijah's doing here. Yeah. He says uh, there in the, the CSB translation, Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow I am staying with by killing her son? Yeah. I don't think he was just saying that to be polite. I think he genuinely is yeah. He's distraught over the situation. Yeah, sure. And I think when I read verses 20 and 21, I feel like it's more than about this situation with the boy. I feel like this has kind of been boiling up for Elijah because— he doesn't just say, have you brought tragedy to this woman? He says, have you also brought tragedy to this woman? I, I feel like there's this subcontext of, God, you took me to the brook, and it dried up, and you brought me here, and there's nothing to eat hardly. Mm-hmm. And now now this is happening. It's kind of like this sure. sense of frustration. God, like, yeah. how much is this going to end? And so I think that is a wrestling um, Elijah's doing with God there. But... Um, he doesn't do it in an impure way or a way. And, you know, we can tend to do that as well. You know, we can tend to bring previous frustrations with us um, to these kind of situations. What Now, Elijah does something that's very unusual and it's very weird. Um, he lays on the boy and, like, stretches himself out three times. But uh, as Elijah being a prophet, what ceremonial act was he doing that would made him, or what act was he doing that would have made him ceremonially unclean? Yeah, he touched the dead body. I mean, you were... Uh, under the law, you you know that made you unclean. Sure. We often think of like Nazarite, like Samson. You know he was consecrated before God, and that was like, hey, you can't touch a dead body. But um, it it wasn't just for that part. wasn't just for the Nazarites. There were other things that just pertained to them. But but I mean, he he wasn't supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and so that gets into an interesting thing. You know, is is Elijah okay to break the ceremonial law here? I mean, obviously he is. Yeah. But why? Well, I think it's important to remember to be unclean or impure does not necessarily mean that you are sinful. Yeah. If you go back and read in Leviticus, it talks about this idea. Uh, just to be unclean or impure is not necessarily to be sinful because even the law allows for these situations, right? Sure. So not only were you not supposed to touch a dead body, you weren't supposed to be around one. Yeah. So imagine if you're an ancient Israelite and you're living in a home, and obviously they their homes were very different from ours, more people packed in. So somebody dies. Everybody in that house basically is impure at that point. Yeah. So the law allows for them to be like, hey, you need to take these steps. You need to ceremonially wash yourself and wait this certain amount of time, and then you'll be pure again. Yeah. So it's not that all these people were being sinful, not impure in that sense. They were just being, they couldn't take part in the worship of the Lord. They couldn't go to the temple there and take part in the worship. Their impurity would then affect other people around them. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I think it's important to remember here, Elijah has not done anything sinful in this situation. Even though he yeah. has done this thing to make him ceremonially impure, there, he's not committed to sin by doing this. Yeah, And I think it's also maybe worth noting here that a lot of the ceremonial laws were about protecting the health of the Israelite people. Yeah, And so, Often. I mean, touch, not touching a dead body is a very similar reason I don't touch a dead bird. Because yeah. for some reason that bird died, and I don't want to pick the disease up or That's whatever right. um, from it. And I think we lose that sometimes when we look at all these laws and food laws and things in the Old Testament. People don't realize that a lot of that was about protecting the mm-hmm. nation of Israel so that Christ um, could come. Yeah, I mean, some, some of God's laws do have practical reasons. Yes, yeah. There's also sometimes just spiritual reasons, and, and yeah. sometimes they overlap. It's, it's not easy yeah. <laughs> by any means to always suss those things out. But, I mean, God is not cruel or unkind. There's always a purpose yeah. in all of his commands. And sometimes I think some of them are just odd to test obedience. You know, like Maybe God so, gives yeah. us some odd things to God. I just want people to trust me. Maybe so. But, so we read this passage with the context of the whole Bible. You know, we know what sure. the whole scripture looks like. We know stories of people raising the dead, and we'll talk about that um, in our deep dive. But at this point, was there any precedence 
for God raising somebody from the dead. Elijah goes up and he asks God to raise this boy from the dead. Can he say, like you did for? No. Uh, he was the he was the first in the scripture that was that was actually raised from dead. I mean, I guess like Isaac was on the verge of death. I mean, he yeah. was, you know. And, and we'll talk about that in the deep dive. Yeah. But he had not physically died. Right. Uh, so, no, there wasn't a precedent for raising the dead. So Elijah does something here that's unprecedented. It's unthought of. And in, in my mind, I'm even going, you know, why would Elijah even have the thought that God would raise this boy from the dead? Because he's never seen, heard, or known of God to raise people from the dead. But he does. He mm-hmm. asks him. He cries out to the Lord, ask him to raise the dead. And God listened. See, I love that verse 22. Yeah. So the Lord listened to Elijah, and the boy's life came back into him, and he lived. And um, can you imagine that moment when Elijah brings the son back downstairs? Because if Elijah has no pretext of God raising from the dead, this woman certainly wouldn't have either. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, people just don't come back from the dead. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's almost impossible to imagine what the woman experienced there in that moment. Yeah. Um, there was a video years ago of, uh, it was when the conflict in Syria first started, or I guess the the war first started. Anyway, uh, there was a bombing, and there was a, a clip of a father who was desperately looking for his son. His son had been off in some other building or what have you, and he couldn't find it. And they, they couldn't find his son anywhere, couldn't find his son anywhere, and son, uh, the father's distraught. Uh, and then somebody was able to find the kid. He was like two or three years old. He was little, little. He had been, they had reported him in one of the other buildings that collapsed completely. But in the craziness of the mm-hmm. conflict, he had actually ended up with somebody else, somebody else in the community. So they, uh, you see all these men, it's like 30 men, and they're with the father. And then they kind of pass the son to the dad. And when the father gets the son back initially, he, he again, this is Middle Eastern culture. They're much more um, openly emotional than we are. He cries out, and he starts hugging his son so tight, they actually have to remove the boy from him because he was so overcome with this sort of painful joy that he was going to crush his son if they didn't take the son away from him. So they had to take him away for a couple minutes. And, of course, the kid's crying because he's just confused by the whole thing to begin with. He kind of has to collect himself, and then they're able to give the boy back to him. I imagine it was something similar to that. No, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And then how does the woman respond? Her response this time is a lot different than it was just a few verses earlier. Yeah, and it's always important to remember all these stories are abbreviated to some yes. degree, so I'm sure she, she probably had some other things to say, but the, the point the writer wanted us to know was, she says, now I know you are a man of God, and the Lord's word from your mouth is true. Yeah. What's your first thought when you hear that? My first thought is, you didn't know that when the bread kept, re- <laughs> like the flour kept replenishing every that day? That does pop in your brain yeah, a little bit. It's just <laughs> but like, man, now you figure it out. Isn't that how we are? Well, because there's, here's the deal. Um, there's a lot of things in this life you can fake. Sure. Yeah. But there was no doubt her son died. So there's there's yeah. there's no fake in that. Like mm-hmm. she could have thought, I don't know, with the bread thing, like, man, I don't know how he's doing that. Like, how in the world like yeah. you know, you you could something similar, like you see somebody we uh they had these uh, burgers in uh in this restaurant near Columbus and they're uh a pound and a half, I think, of meat yeah. on each burger. And this one guy goes in there, he eats like four of them. And it starts on a fifth, and you're like, man, how in the world can you? Like, I don't understand. Like, your stomach isn't yeah. that big. Like, how? And so I think some, you know, with the food thing, maybe yeah. it was something like that. She thought, like, in the back of her mind, like, I know he's doing this, but I don't know how he's doing it. It doesn't make any sense. How's he doing it? But, like, when this happens, like, yeah, there's no mistake in this. Like, I know sure. he was dead, and I know now he is alive um, because I know my son. Right. Sure. Um, so... You know, it's like, it's it's unmistakable, yeah. know, that sort of thing. Can't fake resurrection. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think there's a sense, too, that we are always quick to see God's hand when it moves, but slow to remember it. Yeah, no, that's true as well. Uh, and we see that. I mean, man, the Israelites, do they have a pattern of that time and time again? Sure. But, like, when God first does something, like, man, that's God. And then later on, we go, wait, was that God? Or was that, you know, when it's not fresh. And so God continuously reminds his people. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with our deep dive in just a minute.
Okay, we are back for our deep diving because our story today talks about a young man being raised from the dead. I thought it'd be worth looking back at some of the people who were raised from dead in the scripture. Now, you mentioned one earlier, Shane, that it's more of a metaphorical, but I think it's a very real application, um, Isaac. So tell us what you were thinking there. Well, Isaac, I mean, he, he didn't die, but I mean, he was essentially laying on his deathbed. The Lord provided and, you know, he he didn't die. Um, it was it was a what we call a type or a picture of Christ. Of course, we know that Christ really did die, but yeah. So it's a it's a shadow of the true thing. Sure, and and much of the things like like I think that Jonah was sort of a shadow um, of Christ. The whole book of Jonah, as a matter of fact, of I think Jonah is a picture of the Bible and the the gospel. But my I have a my problem with all these narratives of death and resurrection, except for Christ, because I, like, I yeah. get it. Like, he's God. My problem with, with much of those, and even in the text today with Elijah, you know, putting his weird behavior aside, just the, the death and resurrection narrative is it doesn't make sense to me. Like, I, I, like it, because you want to be able to wrap your mind around it. You want to, and I don't think I'm the only one that struggles with this, these sort of narratives, these miraculous narratives in scripture, like you want to be able to understand it and wrap your mind around it. But I think when when we strive to do that, and, and I've been reading this book and he calls it, you know, we live in a disenchanted world is kind of right. how he frames that. But we, we leave no room for uh to just sit in the awe of God or yeah. or to be or or we leave no room for for a miracle working God, you know, those yeah. sort of things because we we live in a pragmatic, practical world, and I, I'm a product of that. You guys are too. Sure. Um, some people, it's it's less of a hang-up than others, but I think some of the hang-up for some people is like, man, I, it's just some of the stuff just doesn't make sense. I want to be able to understand why why did that happen? Why is this? Why do they do this? And those sort of things. And it's because we want to be able to wrap our minds around it. And if you can wrap your mind around God, it's probably not yeah. God. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think there's probably some truth, or at least this is how it makes sense in my mind, to the fact that these story, all of Scripture points towards Christ, and I think there's just an establishment throughout the Scriptures that God is powerful over death, and sure. ultimately that's seen in yes. the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and so maybe it's it's there to lay precedence, even though God doesn't need precedence. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe that's why it's there. I'm I'm not sure, but I understand the dilemma. It's not just the the resurrection narratives throughout the Bible are just part of it. There's a lot of things in the Bible that you just you're like, man, why? What? That don't even make any sense. Like, um, but again, I think you know it's because God doesn't have to make sense. Like, who am I that He has to make sense to me? Right. You know, what other stories do we see in the Scripture of people being raised from the dead? In my understanding of scripture jonah was raised from the dead i i and i'm i mean let me just preface it by saying this i'm in the minority in this view but i'm not by myself there are other there are people way smarter than me there are bible scholars theologians that that believe the same thing but whenever it was saying jonah was in the belly of the well i mean it does mention sheol which is the place of the dead so explain for our listeners, because I'm assuming most of them have never heard the concept that Jonah was dead. So yeah, explain so, to us that whole theory, or okay. that whole interpretation. Well, maybe. I, I wrote some of it out on my show notes, but let me kind of give a, a a broader view of the book of Jonah, and then I'll kind of narrow in on the actual resurrection part. So uh, basically when Jonah opens, Jonah chapter 1 is kind of, it's, it's kind of the chapter that represents the Old Testament. Uh, Jonah going to preach uh, to Nineveh. And then you got chapter 2, which is, uh, it represents the death and resurrection of Christ. And then you got chapter 3, which represents uh, much of the uh, New Testament. Like, go and proclaim this now. Um, but whenever he was in the uh, belly of the fish, Jonah cried out, um, and it said, I cried out from Sheol. Now, Sheol is not exclusively, but maybe a slight majority of the time, Sheol is meant for like in the earth or place of the dead mm-hmm. is, is what Sheol would represent. 
But many times in the Psalms, it would use the word Sheol as like just a grave dread on my life. It's an mm -hmm. emotional dread. And so they would use the word Sheol for that. So it's not exclusively. So that's what I'm saying. It's, it's not an ironclad way of, of, of thinking about this. But it says, that I cried out from Sheol and you heard me. And then after that, of course, he was uh, vomited up on the beach. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was alive there. Uh, no mistake in that. But then in, in Matthew, it says, you know, like Jonah, the son of man, you know, with three, three days, three nights in, in the heart of the earth, you know. So it, in Matthew, it likens Jonah's experience to that of Christ. Mm -hmm. And of course, we know that Christ died. There was, you know, it wasn't, hmm. it wasn't an apparition. It wasn't something they thought, something they hallucinated. Like he, he literally died and was resurrected. Um, so many would say, well, Jonah is just a was just a shadow of that. It's not necessarily, mm -hmm. but I, I tend to think, no, he's, he's making the comparison because Jonah literally died and was resurrected. Uh, and there, it's, it's a, there's indicators in, in the book of Jonah and in the book of Matthew that you could have that interpretation and you would be, uh, you would be within orthodoxy. Okay. But many people think, well, no, it's just, it's, this is a type. The whole book of Jonah is... Old Testament, Resurrection, New Testament, like it's just uh, an yeah. overview of the gospel, you know. Well, you and I have had this conversation plenty of times. So I don't think I've ever been a part of this conversation with Pastor Matt. Sure. So what are your thoughts on this? I mean, the quick answer is I don't think so. No, I think that's too much of a stretch. I would disagree with your interpretation of Jonah would be my issue. Your yeah, overview sorry. of the book of Jonah, like this part represents the Old Testament. This part represents Jesus' death and resurrection. This part represents... The New Testament, I no, I don't see that at all. So you don't think there, you don't leave any room for he was dead for three days. I don't know what you mean by I don't leave room. Like it's possible. Yeah, sure. I mean, well, I'm saying the, is your he, is your just, argument the most with his um, interpretation of Jonah, or do you or your argument is I don't think Jonah died. Oh yeah, no, I don't think Jonah died. Okay. Um, I don't think the quit. Neither, whatever answer you have to the question, none of that has to do with orthodox because this is not an orthodoxy question. So I don't. Quick. I would take that off. Quick disclaimer table. for our listeners. Explain orthodoxy. Orthodox is the first things, the most important aspects of what the gospel and Jesus' reign is, what the scriptures and what the church has taught for 2,000 years, what the scriptures attest to. So if you are outside of orthodoxy, you have so left the faith once handed down to the saints that you either have left the faith or you're in the very least um, in serious danger of actually rejecting Jesus. Or heresy. That kind of deal. Yeah, heresy, but then you get comments about what heresy is. Yeah. Um, anyway, so any, any interpretation of whether or not Jonah was dead or not, none of it has to do with orthodoxy. So you can believe... It's all inbounds. Yeah, it's all inbounds. You can believe whatever necessary you want to believe. Uh, yeah, so no, I, I don't think Jonah died. Now, I want to be clear, I haven't studied it deeply, so I don't want to pretend like I'm expert on the topic and I haven't, um, but I, I don't, that seems too much of a stretch, and it just seems like a weird way to approach the book of Jonah in general. So, interesting, a couple of interesting things here. One, I wanted to say this, Pastor Shane studied this way more than either Pastor sure, Matt yes, or myself, because um, he's more passionate about it. I, I could see it both ways. I mean, I tend yeah. to lean towards the traditional view of, um, him actually being in a fish, mm -hmm. not a whale, a fish, but uh, that's just a little discriminant. But here's what's interesting to me. You and I are both more prone to, and we talked about this on the podcast before, to believe stuff that's outside the traditional, you know, we talk about um, Genesis 6 type stuff. Like sure. We're, we're a little more toward, prone to, to lean towards those things, and Shane is more prone towards traditional views of things. But here, it's a, it's a flip. That's why I'm... Yeah, I mean, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. I would take... <laughs> this could become such a wormhole. I, I, would, I wouldn't describe it the way you described it. Okay, I mean, that's basically where we got on the Genesis 6. Where, I, and I don't think Peter his view is a traditional view. That would be my argument. <laughs> oh, okay. And on Genesis 6 and First Peter? Yeah, I would argue we're closer to the traditional view. Okay, um, well, maybe traditional view was the wrong word. So, yeah, there. so that... And anyway, yeah, no, we... Historically, in most of the arguments that we've had, and by arguments, I don't mean like angry arguments, but I mean like kind discussion, yes, discussion. discussion iron versus iron, sharpening iron discussions. You and I tend to have 
a more we we tend to be more open to miraculous weird things yeah. than Shane does often. Yeah, and I've yeah. mentioned it even in this podcast. Like, I want yeah. to be able to make sense of it. Right. I, mm-hmm. it you know, um, it's got to be practical, pragmatic, like that sort sure. of thing. That's, right. that's what I gravitate towards. Uh, and this would, not, and this would be the reverse of that. Yeah, so, but yes. not, that's all, what's that's awesome. not <laughs> always. Uh, in, this, in this case, I'm just like, and I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, I'm just it's saying, just interesting reversal. I and, felt like. and here's the thing: I'm not saying I'm right on this. I'm, yeah. s- I'm saying that's yeah, that's how I read yeah, it. That's you how know? you understand it. Yeah. That's how I understand yeah. and, it. And here's the thing with me: like I want to believe that because it like that leans more towards how I like to interpret things. Yeah. But I just I haven't studied enough to be sold on it. I guess sure. that's probably yeah. the best way to. And there are people way smarter than all of us put together that disagree on this yeah, very yeah. same thing, and they have for probably centuries. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, but here's here's my my safety net. There are theologians older, like we call them the, the dead guys, you know. That sure. wrote a lot. There are some that agree with me, or I agree yeah, with them, sure. you know. That, well, that they here's have the thing. If you can't find me, people that agree with you over 2,000 years you're of Christianity, you're, there's no problem. You're wrong right. if you can't problem, find somebody yeah, over 2,000 yeah. years. Uh, all right, so either way, Jonah fits either metaphorically or literally. Sure. Um, who else do we see? Lazarus, literally, we yes. know that. Yeah. He stinketh. Um, yeah. stinketh. He was dead. Yeah, he was. <laughs> and here's one thing. Um, we often talk about uh, like death. Like people say, you know, we're not supposed to grieve as the world grieves because we sure. have a hope. And yeah. and people can take that too far and say, well, you know what? We're not supposed to be sad when a Christian dies because yeah. we know they're going to. Yeah. No, like what do you do with Jesus? Because Jesus cried when I, Lazarus died. I was about died. to ask like, the question, why did Jesus weep? Yeah. yeah. So uh, no, I'm, I'm literally asked a question. I mean, we're not going to get an answer, but why did Jesus weep? Why do you think because he? Because he's 100% man. I mean, he was 100% God. Don't yeah. I'm not trying to minimize his deity. He's 100% both. But yeah. he was 100% man. And when someone dies on this earth, that is a sad occasion. Yeah. It death, always is. Death is not the natural way. Yeah. So, so we, any any death is ultimately a sad thing. Yeah. So we all agree that Jesus wept because Lazarus had died. And yeah, he was upset yeah. this for died. I've heard, yeah. you know, Some there's a lot of spiritualize it. People yeah. say, well, he wept because he had to bring him back from the dead. And that's something I struggle with. Like, death is better if for the believer because you're entering into the eternal. Your, but Jesus brought him back to yeah. this world. You know, they, you've heard things about Lazarus. Or like, you won't know how much he saw in death. But he's like, man, why'd you bring me back? Kind of thought. But I don't know. Well, that, you know the um, what was it? We the, don't have the, enough answers the, to really Jewish, think through that. Jewish history, like they Jewish belief throughout history, they they believe that your soul didn't depart the body for like three days or four days or something. I mean, it was some yeah. period of time they didn't believe that right when you died, your spirit departed your body. Right, like it was there was a period of time. Um, I don't know exactly what it was. I mean, but that was their that was their belief in you know first yeah. century Judaism. So. So we've got the little girl in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus raised from the dead. They kind of argued with Jesus that she's dead. He said, no, she's asleep, and then yeah. raises yeah. the little girl. I'm surprised they laughed at him, is, is what yes. it says, because I feel like if you just told me my daughter was asleep and not dead when I knew she was dead, I, I don't think I would laugh at that yeah. notion. But back to people respond but, to grief in many wonder, different ways. That's true, but yeah. you wonder if they, when they say that, if they're like... Uh, More of a scoff. Yeah, more of a like, Maybe so, yeah. like yeah, whatever. Like, not not necessarily like a laugh, like mm-hmm. we would laugh at a joke. Yeah. Um, because like the, like even when it when scripture uses the word sleep, like it like it said that what was Stephen was stoned, like he fell asleep and those sort of things. Um, many times scripture uses the word sleep for death because it's sleep's a temporary state, and for the believer, death is. It's you know instantaneous. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a yeah. temporary state, and so that's why the word sleep was used in this particular text. And so I wonder if, and I only say that to say this: I wonder if laugh was used kind of in the same way, right? You know, not like laugh. Hey, I heard a joke. I laugh like that. I'm wondering if it was like just just a sign of disbelief. Yeah, I'm sure it probably was. And then the most obvious: Jesus died on the cross, buried, three days later rose mm-hmm. from the dead. So there is some precedence, although as I was thinking about this, there's not as much as I... If you had said, how many times did God raise the dead in Scripture? I probably would have said, there's a bunch, but then when I go to looking into it, it's not as many as you would think. No, And, th- and, th- I mean, and I'm sure we've missed some. Yeah, I mean, and, and when you size that against the population, it was rare. 
Yeah. You know, when you think of hundreds of thousands of people or even millions of people on, in this region at this time. Yeah. And, you know, we, what we, five people. Right. You know, uh, I mean, and this is throughout Old Testament and New Testament. So we're talking over a span of time. So yeah. for God to raise somebody from dead is very rare. Yeah. And three of those five took place in the Gospels. All right. So it's in Acts 20 that the young man Eutychus, who fell asleep while Paul was preaching, he then fell out a window and then Paul raised him back to life. So that's another example of resurrection. And to our listeners, there's no guarantee if you fall asleep during a sermon and die that God's going to raise you from the dead. No. Uh, mm-hmm. I would dare say that probably doesn't happen terribly often. Yeah. But this has been an interesting deep dive into raising the dead from Scripture, and there are a few accounts there. And we'll be back in just a few minutes to talk about our takeaways from this week and the life of Elijah. We are back to wrap up this week of the Wordsmith Podcast with our big takeaways. What are your big takeaways um, this week for the life of Elijah? So I think from um, a somewhat practical standpoint, we see tragedy strikes. We, we talked in depth about how we respond when someone else is going through something, whether tragedy, pain, grief, what have you. But then I, it is worth remembering what precisely Elijah did. He expressed his own doubts, his own concern, his own anger, mm-hmm. but then he acted out in faith. And that's the theme and the idea we see constantly throughout Scripture. The Psalms are the best place, if you want to go look at this, this idea that you can be honest about where you're at. You can be honest about what you're feeling. You can be honest about how you're doing. If you're angry, if you're upset, if you're sad, whatever, but then that cannot stop you from then acting out in faith. Right, because we see Elijah, he expresses that and he's got God. Have you brought this tragedy on this widow now? Even this, also this, but then he says, "Please heal this boy, bring him back to life." And we see that throughout scriptures, is that God, I don't understand why I'm going through this. I don't understand why I'm dealing with this, but I'm still going to trust you. I'm still going to call out and praise your name. I'm still going to follow after you. And that's what much of the Christian life, as we wait a final resurrection, that's what much of the Christian life is: is being able to honestly express how we're feeling but then really truly acting and following him in faith. It's not one or the other. You can do both. I was reading the other day um, Jackie Hill Perry, who is a uh, poet and author. She uh, posted this. She says, If God is holy, then he can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against you. And if he can't sin against you, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? Regardless of what you're going through, God can't sin. He can't sin against you. There is a purpose. There's something in the midst of why you're going through what you're going through, and he will not abandon you. That's good stuff, Matthew. Yes. Pastor Shane, what's she does your need to work with? on her rhyming a little bit. but that, that itself was not, not a poem. Oh, okay. <laughs> Shame. And poetry doesn't have to rhyme if you want to. It doesn't. Since we're talking about high school, let's end right. talking about it doesn't poetry. have to. Just a good kind. Shane slept through that class, Just I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't fall out the window, though. What's your takeaway, Shane? Overall, I guess my takeaway would be God doesn't have to make sense to me. Mm-hmm. God only has to make sense to God, right. you know, because he doesn't have to answer to anybody but himself. I guess if you want to, you know, put it in those terms, like, sure. like I'm not anybody he has to make sense to or or like he he doesn't have to appeal to my sense of right and wrong. Right. Because, I mean, he he's always right. Like, uh, so I, I, I guess that's even in tragedy, like God doesn't. He doesn't have to, because I'm sure from this, at least to, for some period of time, maybe for this widow, she thought, man, this is wrong. Like, I did all the do's. I avoided all the don'ts. I listened to your man, God, and then bad things happened to me. So in, in maybe in her eyes, um, and at least there's at least an indication that she, maybe she thought this way, like, God, you did me wrong. Like, mm-hmm. and, and you didn't appeal to my sense of right and wrong. Well, who is she that God has to, you know? Who am I that God has to? Who is anybody that God has to appeal to your sense of right and wrong? If it doesn't appeal to your, if you think it's wrong, 
then you're the one that needs to reevaluate. It's not it's not God. So I guess that's you know that's my main takeaway from this particular discussion. That's good. You know, and and part of that too is it expecting God to do the unexpected. And I'm not good at that sometimes. Yeah. Um, but Paul even tells us in um, Ephesians that God's able to do immeasurably more than mm-hmm. we can think or imagine. Part of the thing that I take away from this is where do we run when tragedy hits? Because Elijah could have ran a lot of places, but he ran to the upper room to pray. Yeah. And um, when we have difficult things in our life, sometimes we have bitterness, sometimes we have frustrations, and we see that come out from Elijah. But the question is, does tragedy make us run to God or away from God? And the answer should always be that it causes us to run to him. Yeah. And um, we don't have to understand, as Shane said, and we can bear our emotions, as Pastor Matt said, mm-hmm. but ultimately we run to the only one that is good, the only one that can heal, the only one that can bring us hope and restoration. Man, this has been a really interesting um, week of the life of Elijah, and we look forward to continuing next week. No matter how you listen to podcasts, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or almost anywhere podcasts are played, thank you for listening to us. Review us, like us, share the word, and we'll be back next week.